Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Moses and Jeremiah, Divine Presence in the Human Struggle, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 31st, 2008. The 39 books that Christians know as the Old Testament were written across a thousand years. Despite the differences that you would expect from such a mini-library composed by multiple authors, they all speak about the saving power of God in human history. At the risk of oversimplification, we can say that God's story with Israel revolved around two major acts. In the first act, after 430 years of bondage, there was Israel's triumphant exodus from Egypt, sometime around 1400 BC. Then, 800 years later, there was tragic exile to Babylon in 586 BC. These seminal events of exodus and exile echo throughout the whole Bible as two ways that God works in human history and even in our own personal histories. Moses was the primary protagonist of Israel's exodus from oppression in Egypt. After an unlikely sequence of events in which God saved him from infanticide, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household at the center of political power. As an adult, Moses murdered an Egyptian for beating a fellow Hebrew, which caused that same Pharaoh to try to murder him. And so he fled. In what Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 calls the far side of the desert, God called Moses to return to Egypt, the very land of Israel's enemy oppressors where the king had tried to kill him, in order to face down Pharaoh. The Exodus drama was a drama of liberation from oppression and exploitation, of miraculous deliverance, of God's mighty acts of power in regal display, of his dramatic intervention to shatter the enemy, work wonders, break the powers of bondage. The Exodus is mentioned throughout the Bible as a reminder of God's power to save and celebrated at Passover even today by Jews. Jeremiah was a protagonist of Israel's exile to Babylon. Whereas Moses confronted enemy Egypt, Jeremiah confronted his own nation about their destiny with disaster. To the prophets, priests, and kings of Judah, Jeremiah preached an unpatriotic, seditious, and judgmental message that went something like the following. Stop giving our people reckless lies and false hopes. Stop betraying them with your delusional messages of comfort and hope. National disaster is just around the corner for our country. The exile was a tragedy of deportation to pagan Babylon. For the elect nation Israel, it feel, felt unthinkable beyond comprehension. What had happened? Where were God's mighty acts of power? 
Was not Israel his inviolable and elect people? How could he banish them to a pagan enemy? Exile to Babylon began a period of subjugation, servitude, and captivity. It seemed to signal failure, isolation, loneliness, and even punishment. And certainly for many people, it meant despair. But exile was just as much a place of redemption as was Exodus. We read in Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Despite the obvious differences of their outward circumstances, both Moses and Jeremiah responded to God's call with loud protests about their personal inadequacies. Moses and Jeremiah wrestled with the prospects of failure, with virulent opposition from detractors, and with deep discouragements. Moses is famous for his litany of fears, lack of confidence, limited skill, insecurities about personal identity, in fear of rejection. For Jeremiah's 40 years of faithfulness to God's call, he was beaten, received death threats, imprisoned, thrown down a well, and derided as an unpatriotic crank and traitor. Almost no one listened to him. He was an isolated man of reproach among his own people. Anyone who has heeded God's call to mission and ministry can identify with the discouragement of Jeremiah and Moses. Their many troubles, both real and imagined, remind us that there is no divine call without human conflict, no summons without struggle. In the words of the young and earnest priest in George Bernanos's Diary of a Country Priest, we pay a heavy, very heavy price for the superhuman dignity of our calling. George Bernanos's story is the one book that I wish someone had made me read in seminary, although I admit that it's so profound that I probably would have missed much of its message. The Diary of a Country Priest is the sort of book you might not fully appreciate until you're about 50 years old. By that time, the human struggle with the divine call has carved lines in your faces and deep channels in your heart. Bernanos's powerful tale describes a young and earnest priest in rural France who feels that he's a total failure. From a human perspective, He's not mistaken. As is fitting, we never even learn his name. The young priest keeps a diary to unburden himself to God, to cultivate a sense of brutal honesty with himself, and to record what he calls, quote, the simple, trivial secrets of a very ordinary kind of life, end quote. In the diary, he confides his doubts and loneliness, his sense of futility, and especially his struggles with his sense of God's call. Reflecting upon what he calls his wretched weakness, he struggles with a palpable sense of total failure 
that, quote, my best is nothing, end quote. And so he worries. Am I where our Lord would have me? Twenty times a day I ask this question. The, feet, the priest feels powerless in the face of suffering. He clashes with clergy colleagues. He broods about the history of his own family dysfunction. He grows disgusted with his own body due to chronic stomach pains and an impoverished diet. He knows that he's physically clumsy and socially awkward. He ponders the absurdity of prayer. He agonizes over his loneliness and sense of isolation. When he shares the gospel, he sometimes feels like he's merely play-acting in parroting cliches. And so he compares his restlessness to a hornet in a bottle. As for his church, he describes his parishioners as bored, boring, and petty. They gossip about him as a secret drinker and a womanizer, accusations that are, in fact, ludicrous. Nevertheless, the priest loves his flock. He visits every home every year, and he prays for them. He has a keen sense of history and his own obscure role to play. He's an astute observer of human weakness, frailty, and fallenness. And by the time he dies of stomach cancer at a young age, Bernanos has painted what we realize now is a portrait of a genuine saint. The priest's elders give him some wise advice when he questioned his call. And here I quote, Keep saying your lessons. Go on with your work. Keep at the little daily things that need doing till the rest comes. Concentrate. Think of a lad at his homework, trying so hard and his tongue sticking out. That's how our Lord would have us be when he gives us up to our own strength. Little things, they don't look like much, yet they bring peace. Like wild flowers, which seem to have no scent till you get a field full of them. Keep marching to the end and try to end up quietly at the roadside without shedding your equipment. Moses, Jeremiah, and Bernanos's young priest all persevered in their calls. Every divine call needs such human perseverance. But God gives us something far more than an exhortation to perseverance. He promises, his, uh, he promises us his divine presence. When Moded doubted his deepest self, God assured him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you. And to Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, he promised the exact same thing. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And so, on his deathbed, the young priest in Bernanos' story confessed, and so should we today. Grace is everywhere. And now for further reflection. 
contemplate Paul's own sense of inadequacy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7-12. Imagine that the promises of God in Exodus 3.12 and Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8 are spoken directly to you when God says, I am with you. What have been your own conflicts and struggles in God's call on your life? In what ways do you identify with Moses and Jeremiah? And finally, for further reflections on vocation and calling, see Parker Palmer, Let Your Life Speak, and the award-winning book by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. For books this week, I review Rick Bragg, Ava's Man, New York, Knopp, 2001, 259 pages. With his improbable personal background and deaf storytelling, Rick Bragg has earned an avid readership. Ten years ago, in his book All Over But the Shoutin', 1997, he introduced his family of origin, and especially his heroic mother, who epitomized the poorest of poor white trash. His most recently released book, The Prince of Frogtown, 2008, makes peace with his violently alcoholic father, who repeatedly abandoned his family. Bragg spent one semester in college, then started writing, first high school sports, local stories, anything at all. Then in 1993, he won a prestigious Neiman Fellowship to spend a year at Harvard, and in 1996, he won a Pulitzer for feature writing at the New York Times. Today, he teaches writing at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. In Ava's Man, Rick Bragg recreates the story of his maternal grandfather, Charlie Boondrum, 1901-1958, a man of mythic proportions and colorful character who died the year before Bragg was actually born. Like his other two memoirs, Bragg's narrative works well at many levels. He illustrates the power of place. He honors the traditions of a time and place that had been lost to cultural snobbery. He exemplifies the ambiguous shadow that one's extended family casts over successive generations, and is just a remarkable wordsmith with the dialect of rural Alabama and Georgia. Grandfather Charlie Boondrum was a roofer who could neither read nor write. His people picked the banjo. At the slightest insult to honor, they brawled with pocket knives, axe handles, and shotguns. They worked in the mills and picked other people's cotton. Charlie fished his beloved Coosa River on a boat, quotation marks needed, made from two car hoods that he welded together. He could make a harmonica scream, and he ruined his liver from too many mason jars of moonshine. Charlie eloped with his beloved Ava when she was 16 and he was 17. Ava, dip snuff, 
Her dresses were made from feed and flour sacks. She knew the meaning of welfare cheese handouts and somehow nourished her eight children through the Depression and two world wars. Charlie moved his family 21 times in a decade between the backwoods of Georgia and Alabama, sometimes looking for work, sometimes outrunning the law, and never more than a hundred miles either way. When Rick, when Rick Bragg's own alcoholic father deserted his family for the last time, Ava took in Bragg's mother and three sons and became their stalwart caregiver. Bragg owns the horrific domestic violence, superstitions, cockfights, and alcoholism that characterize so much of those times, places, and people. But he dignifies their hard work, the dirt under their fingernails, music, foods, traditions, their poetic dialect, and their resilience. When his grandfather, Charlie Boondrum, died at the age of 51, a line of cars snaked a mile or more to his funeral at Tredegar Congregational Holiness Church. And I wonder, how many of us today can hope for a similar legacy that is so honored by one's community? Rick Bragg, Ava's Man, 2001. For films this week, we go to Mongolia, a film called Kadak, K-H-A-D-A-K, from the year 2006. Producers and writers Peter Brosens and Jessica Hope Woodworth combine bleak realism and artistic surrealism in this film set on the Phrygian Mongolian steppe. The teenager Boggy and his family are nomadic herders who are forcibly relocated by the government under the ruse of a plague. They are resettled in a grimy mining town where monster machines gash coal from the earth, dilapidated high-rises loom out of the barren landscape, and steamy smoke belches from every chimney. As a youngster on the Mongolian steppe, Baggy had seizures. A shamanus in the desert, though, interpreted this as a spiritual gift. In the government hospital, doctors in white coats called it epilepsy. In Baggy's clairvoyance and premonitions, time, space, and relations get rearranged in a collision of worldviews that is both literal and deeply figurative. Act has earned awards from Sundance, Venice, and Toronto film festivals. It's in Mongolian with English subtitles. Kadak from the year 2006. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a very short poem by the Nobel laureate in literature, Czeslaw Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004. The title of his poem is called A Task. In fear and trembling, I think I would fulfill my life only if I brought myself to make a public confession revealing a sham, my own 
and of my epoch. We were permitted to shriek in the tongue of dwarfs and demons, but pure and generous words were forbidden under so stiff a penalty that whoever dared to pronounce one considered himself as a lost man. A task. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 31st, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.